When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome along to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. For new episodes delivered straight to your feed every Thursday, make sure to subscribe. And if you'd like to, you can also leave us a rating and a review. This week we're taking a look at the annual traditions and events that have marked the early parts of the year. Some we still celebrate today, while others have slipped into obscurity. Joining us to describe these seasonal traditions, what was celebrated and why, is senior properties historian Dr Michael Carter. It's great to be back, Charles. We begin with Plough Monday. The clue is in the name. What was this exactly? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's the day on which the ploughing season, a key event in the agricultural year, the breaking up of the soil for the sowing of crops, it went all the way through to March, and it started on Plough Monday. That would be the first Monday after New Year, after January the 1st? You're almost there. It's the first Monday after the Feast of the Epiphany, that's on the 6th of January, the climax of Christmas celebrations. So this year, Plough Monday would have fallen on the 8th of January. And what would have happened on a typical Plough Monday when it was being celebrated? Right. Well, observance of Plough Monday and its celebration only really died out in the 19th century. So I'll start by talking about a medieval Plough Monday and what that would have consisted of. And it was very much a communal event and it had a strong religious dimension. Now, heavy ploughs, they were key medieval technology drawn by oxen and were very, very expensive bits of kit and were often communally owned and stored in the local parish church. We know of the existence of what were called plough guilds and lights, that's to say candles, were burned before them. Ploughs were blessed by a parish priest on so-called Plough Sunday. That's the Sunday immediately before Plough Monday. And on Plough Monday itself, they would have been dragged around the village or the local community, a kind of fundraising tour for parish funds. There'd have also been some feasting and drinking to mark the start of this crucial event in the agricultural year, indeed, one on which your survival really did depend. Now, the blessing of ploughs, the burnings of candles before them, didn't survive the Protestant Reformation in the middle of the 16th century. But a lot of other traditions did survive. And did the way that you've been describing it through the Middle Ages evolve much through the later centuries before it gradually died out in the 19th century? Yeah, I mean, in some respects, I think they had a really good idea about going back to work just after Christmas. Now, first of all, I think it's, it's important to mention that the extended Christmas holiday that would have started on the afternoon of Christmas Eve, gone right through to Plough Monday, that was only for some people. If you were a servant and you had animals to look after, there wouldn't have been any extended holiday whatsoever. This break from labour really only applied to people who owned service 
feudal service to their lord of the manor. But yeah, a lot of the Plough Monday traditions in some respects do survive. It's because it's so important. Now, this kind of tour around the local community, Plough Monday, that does survive and it becomes a kind of fundraising event for the ploughboys who would often be paid bad wages and they're often hired agricultural labourers. They don't really have a secure job. And there's singing accompanies as various Plan Monday songs have been recorded. And as I said, the ceremonies did endure in some bits of the country, um, especially East Anglia and Lincolnshire, counties around there, well into the 19th century. And then they get revived by Anglo-Catholic churchmen in the late 19th and 20th centuries. So it's interesting that um, the farming equipment was almost communally owned, which is something that um, most farmers these days would not recognise. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people were tenant farmers and, you know, had small holdings and just couldn't afford a a heavy plough. And community, neighbourliness, was very, very important to medieval and early modern societies. Now, in some respects, it could be very supportive. Things like this sharing the plough, In other ways, it can be, well, you know, if you step outside the bounds of what's accepted communal behaviour and you find yourself shunned, well, that's much less pleasant. Okay, well, let's move on to another date in the calendar. We have a little-known Saints' Day, I believe, in mid-January. What can you tell us about this one? Well, which one do you want to go for? The calendar uh-huh. is peppered with saints' days. In fact, there are multiple saints' days for every single day of the year. In fact, there are so many saints that a special group of Jesuit priests called the Bollandists have been working through the calendar of saints' days of the Roman Catholic Church since the 17th century, looking for evidence of the existence of these saints and various stories about them, what's called their legends. But yeah, the one we're talking about uh, specifically now is the Feast of St. Hilary of Poitiers that falls on the 13th of January. Was Hilary a man or a woman? And why were they sainted? Well, it's a good point, um, uh, because Hilary can be both a man and a woman's name now, but he was most definitely a man. And he lived in what's now France in the 4th century. This was a time of great religious change. And he was born a pagan, but in around about 350, he converted to Christianity. And a few years later, he was elected as Bishop of Poitiers, a very, very important Roman city. Now, he took a leading part in religious disputes that were then raging about the nature of Christ. There was a heresy called Arianism, and it really did divide the church at that time. And he's he's very much on the orthodox side, and he stands up to an emperor with what he thinks are heretical beliefs, and he even suffers exile as a consequence. Now, he was a very, very important churchman of his age, and his such he was known to St. Jerome and St. Augustine, and he was the author of several important theological texts, which were widely read, read rather not just in his own age, but throughout the Middle Ages. Now, he died in 367 and was almost immediately venerated as a saint. And his relics remained a focus of pilgrimage until the middle of the 17th century when they were destroyed by French Protestants. Is St. Hilary's Day followed today? Well, not really, but it still has left a mark on our calendar. His feast would have been ubiquitous across the Western Church. 
it was celebrated in either on the 13th or in some traditions on the 14th of January as well, but it's now been fixed on the 13th. But in England, I think it's probably better known than it is in other parts of Europe. And that's because it's coincided with the start of new legal and academic terms. Oxford and Cambridge still call the academic term starting in just after Christmas, the Hillary term. And that's also the official name for the sittings of uh, courts that start around this time in England as well. Ah, very interesting. Just so I've got it clear, Michael, um, how sort of significant is St. Hillary's Day within the series of Saints' Days during January? I mean, what, why does it stand out? It's a really interesting. He is. He would have been a very, very important saint in Poitiers and surrounding areas. And if a church was dedicated to St. Hilary, it would have been a very, very important day. And his relics were quite widely distributed as well. I think a number of English monasteries and cathedrals claimed relics of St. Hilary. So institutions that had those, it would have been a big day as well. But for most churches and even greater churches across medieval Europe, it would just have been a second tier day. It's not one of the principal feasts, but it has acquired special significance here in England because of the use of the name to describe the commencement of academic and legal terms. It's also worth mentioning that the 13th of January is also what's called the Octave of the Epiphany. It's one of the days marking the end of Christmas observances. It's it's what you could actually say one of the days you can claim represents the true end of Christmas, although we're going to be talking about another candidate lately. And it's things like um, the liturgy changes, the colour of vestments worn by priests changes as well. So, you know, and in some respects as well, the singing of carols would end then as well. Well, that's really hard to believe today, isn't it, you know? Even these days with Twelfth Night and Christmas ending on... Well, that's a question. That's a really good... We could actually have a, a whole podcast on Twelfth Night. And there mm. is immense confusion about when Twelfth Night falls. You know, there are people who will claim it's the 5th, or the people will claim it is the 6th of January. In the Middle Ages, it was most definitely observed on the 6th of January, the Feast of the Epiphany. There is a tonnage of documentary evidence showing that, that the Epiphany... I mean, to a lot of people today, you know, the Epiphany just isn't marked at all. You know, you have to go to um, somewhere like Cologne, where the relics of the Three Kings are, to see a really big celebration happening on the Epiphany. But in times gone by, the Epiphany was the climax of Christmas observances, and it most definitely was when Twelfth Night, the real crescendo of Christmas celebrations, would have taken place. Mm. Just remind us what um, Epiphany actually is. It's had a number of meanings over the years, but it becomes fixed that it is actually the adoration of the Magi when all the three kings come to recognise the infant Christ, the Messiah. And it's so funny to think of that as being into January when, you know, that story we tell ourselves in, in the modern times is really just sort of Christmas Eve, really, and, and, and an advent, isn't it? So, oh, I mean, the way we observe Christmas has changed massively. Christmas basically starts on the 1st of December for many people. And by the time you get to Christmas Day and Boxing Day, people are already getting slightly fed up with it. Where I live in central London, the streets have been littered with discarded Christmas trees since Christmas Eve. 
Um, you know, and I think that's it's indicative of how we observe Christmas. And you know, then we've got a pseudo penitential season starts in January, where everybody's a bit broke, feeling a bit fat, a bit liverish after all their celebrations. And uh, although they might not be that happy about having to go back to work and look at their bank balances, and a lot of people are thoroughly glad that Christmas is well and truly over. But in actual fact, Christmas is in fact more of a January festival than it is a December one. As we head into February, though, Michael, we have another Christian celebration. It's on the 2nd of February. So tell us what this one is. It's the Feast of the Purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, It's got another name, the Feast of the Presentation of Christ in the Temple. It's described in the Gospel of Luke how, in observance of Mosaic law, the Virgin goes to the Temple to be purified after the birth of Christ. And as the firstborn, they have to also make an offering in the Temple for Christ. It's uh, because they're quite poor, they're allowed to offer two doves. Now, when Christ is in the temple, he is recognized as the Messiah by an aged and just man called Simeon. He'd been told by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't die until he had had the chance to recognize and acknowledge Christ the Messiah. And taking Christ in his arms, he says, Lord, let now thy servant depart in peace. And these are words that are said every day in the Christian liturgy the Nunc Dimittis in the uh, late evening service of Compline. And what you're describing as well is also otherwise known as Candlemas, is that right? That is absolutely the case. That's the alternative name in England. It's a day on which candles that were going to be used throughout the rest of the year would have been blessed at a special mass. Now, these candles were therefore thought to be especially holy and were, for instance, used during the ceremonies and liturgy accompanying death. At greater churches, such as monasteries, there would have been a candlelit procession around the church and cloister. It's also worth noting that uh, Candlemas marks the end of the church Christmas cycle. It's the end of Christmas, really, and was traditionally the day on which decorations would finally be taken down. Where do we get the name Candlemas then? Because I believe there is no mention of candles in the Bible story that you That's described. That's right, yeah. But Simeon recognises Christ as the light of the Gentiles. So there is an association with light there. I see. And that's something that is talked up in Advent, isn't it, during sermons of Christ being the light of the world and in the darkness, in the, in the darkest time of year as well. There's a, yeah. you know, the, the, the Advent liturgy changes. Uh, you have it both as a, for Christ the Saviour, but also about the second coming of Christ as well. Is there any connection between the candles that were added to the service and the days gradually getting lighter at this time of year, you know, uh, as we get into February? Yeah, I think it's a, a fortunate coincidence, to be honest. There's lots of re arguments about why Christmas falls on the 25th of December, you know association with ancient Roman feasts, possibly? Is it because of beliefs in Christianity about the importance of the 25th of March of not just being the day on Christ's incarnation at the Annunciation, but also actually the day for the creation of Adam and the day on which Christ is crucified as well, and therefore it's kind of projection, therefore you've got the 25th of December. So I think it really is just fortuitous coincidence that by early February, 
you are starting to get the return of a very definite observable return of daylight into the afternoon and um, it's still light in here in southern england where i am uh, around about 5 p.m in the evening there's been a significant gain in daylight since the darkest months of the year by the second of february yes because i think it sort of goes from about 3 30 ish depending on where you are in the uk to yes about 5 p.m as, as you described so we suddenly quickly gain a lot of light and a lot of time i suppose and you also start to get the first spring flowers are observable around this time of year as well you know there's a definite sense that at least the worst of the dark is over and there are signs of better things to come even though the very worst of the weather and also in agricultural societies the worst privations in terms of food supply and fuel may well have been before you as well but there are inklings of hope so Candlemas is quite an optimistic festival, really. Indeed. In fact, there are some people who would claim it really does mark the beginning of spring. Well, let's move on to some other festivals that follow it. Three dates to talk to next, back to back. Uh, what are these, first of all, Michael? Well, some of them are going to be quite familiar to people, other, and one of them I imagine is not. So we've got Collop Monday, Shrove Tuesday and Ash Wednesday. Right. And what's their significance starting with Collop Monday? Yeah. Now we're talking about, you know, the Christian calendar was punctuated by feasts and fasts. And all these all relate to the very, very greatest season of fast in the Christian year, which is the season of Lent. Now, Lent was a very big deal indeed. It was a season of penitence and bodily denial marriage and sex were forbidden and there was an awful lot of dietary restrictions as well you basically couldn't eat any fats be that meat poultry eggs cheese and butter so you needed to eat up what was left in your larder cuts of preserved meats were called collops and they would be fried and eaten on the monday giving the name to that day and on Shrove Tuesday, well, that's so called because you would confess your sins, you would be shriven on that day, receive absolution. And you would also on that day eat up your other fats. I see. And is that why we, you know, mix the eggs and make the pancakes on Shrove Tuesday? Yeah, that's right. There is something that still survives. And in fact, I think pancakes are first recorded in the 17th century. But there were loads of other traditions, traditions rather, that marked Shrove Tuesday. It was a great outpouring of fun before the penitence and austerities of Lent. And it was especially associated with a kind of riotous form of football that gets so kind of boisterous and so many bones get broken that various civic authorities have to legislate against it. And also it was associated with cockfighting. There was an awful lot of cockfighting or even, well, you know, not just setting the cocks against one another, but also just basically stoning them or bludgeoning them to death. And in actual fact, the cockfighting on Shrove Tuesday provokes a whole campaign against it. And cockfighting becomes, in the middle of the 19th century, the first blood sport to be banned in Britain. It seems to me that there are a lot of festivities festivals where people really do let their hair down 
Right, look at those Bruegel paintings, our great 16th century Netherlandish painting, now they're the battle between Carnival and Lent, and it shows Shrove Tuesday celebrations in a Flemish village. And also it's the origin of Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday. And, you know, that's a kind of riotous celebration. I mean, it's now been thoroughly, thoroughly secularised and even moved to times of year with which it has absolutely no calendar true relationship. But it's still this outpouring of fun and, to some extent, transgressive behaviour. It's another opportunity for, as we were talking about in a, a podcast for Christmas, licensed misrule. So what you're saying is that people have their over-exuberance and over-excitement um, so that they can binge on it and enjoy themselves. And then at that point, they are cleaned, absolved of, of sin so that they can then go into the next period, you know, refreshed. Well, you have to be genuinely sorry of your sins for the absolution to work and you also have to serve a penance and boy is the next six weeks going to be penitential now ash wednesday is straight after shrove tuesday obviously it's the next That's day. right now ash wednesday is the formal beginning of lent and it is so called because on the morning of ash wednesday a special church service you would have ash made from the palms that had been used on the Palm Sunday preceding smeared on your forehead. It's again, ash has long been associated with penance. And often people would then make a sign of the cross in their forehead. Now, again, the imposition of ashes remains a ceremony in the Roman Catholic Church. And also it's been reintroduced into the Anglican Church, especially in, in the Anglo-Catholic tradition but it stops being a service in, in the Protestant Church of England at the Reformation. And can you just, for people who don't know, explain the significance of Palm Sunday and the, and the burning of the, the palms, which then creates the ash? Yeah, Palm Sunday is the Sunday before Easter, and it commemorates Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem. People, I believe, at the time were waving palm branches. Palms, that's right. And in palms aren't available in England. <laughs> so they would have used anything that was uh, starting to become in leaf at that time or evergreens. So on the surviving ones from the ceremony Palm Sunday the year before would be burned on Ash Wednesday, mixed with holy water and then smeared on people's foreheads as a sign of their penitence and also of their mortality, a reminder of their mortality. Now, you'll sometimes see Shrove Tuesday and Ash Wednesday printed into a diary that you can buy, but Collop Monday, I don't think you probably would. So is there any reason for this? I think that there's something could well be to do with how fasting has fallen out of fashion. Now, that's already starting in post-Reformation England, the legal requirement to fast goes and then, you know, it, it's softened in by the Tudors and then later under the Stuarts, you know, they try and encourage the eating of fish, but they say that's to uh, protect the fishing industry rather than have any real religious significance. And well, people just aren't doing it anymore. And also, I think if we do have a penitential fasting season at all now, it's likely to be in January, and that's to try and get rid of some Christmas pounds 
and actually recover some Christmas pounds as well, get some, <laughs> lay down some monetary pounds after the excesses of Christmas and the excesses in every way. So it's just fallen out. We don't really have a calendar punctuated by seasons of abstinence now. There's no kind of deferred pleasure, is there? You want your pleasure. Uh, there'll be various lifestyle gurus who give you ideas about how to cleanse yourself and things like that. But um, these older calendar festivals and calendar traditions associated with balancing the periods of feast and celebrations with periods of fast and abstinence while they've gone. These days it's more ad hoc, isn't it? Depending it really on... is, yeah. It's, I mean, and it's that thing of like, you know, the importance of your own conscience. And that is something that very much comes out with the Reformation. But even when the Roman Catholic Church, since the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, Lenten abstinences and denials have been much, much reduced. It's now kind of a matter for your own conscience. And in some extent, it'll be a token as well. Give up chocolate, give up smoking, give up the booze. Not eating meat will be something for some people, especially on Fridays. Okay, well, let's move on to another date in February. It's slap bang in the middle of it. It's a saint's feast day where the saint has somewhat been lost from the title over the years. So what was St. Valentine's Day originally? Well, actually, it falls on the 14th of February, which this year is also Ash Wednesday. So St. Valentine's Day, if you were going to have a traditional observance of a feast day with a little bit of celebration, well, there's no feasting going on on Ash Wednesday. It's one day in the year when you absolutely do have to be austere. And actually, Roman Catholics to this day still are not meant to eat meat on Ash Wednesday. But St. Valentine, who was he and why is he associated with love? Well, there are two possible St. Valentines. They're both martyred in the mid-3rd century in or near Rome because of their Christian beliefs. One's a bishop, the other one's a priest. And there were two St. Valentine's feast days were celebrated on the 14th of February. But the Bollandists, who I mentioned earlier, decided that they're one and the same, actually. It's just that their traditions and their legends, as they're called, have been a bit confused. Um, so that's who St. Valentine is. And why the 14th of February? It's the date of his martyrdom. And the veneration of St. Valentine is very old indeed. In the mid-4th century, a basilica or a great church was built above his tomb on the outskirts of Rome. And it was a must-see place, a must-visit destination for pilgrims to the Holy City in the Middle Ages. So this would have been the date of his death, That's 14th right, of February. Yeah. Right. And how old is this association with romance then? Why, why, why romance? How does that become part of the story if it began as a religious one? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing in about what we know about St. Valentine that suggests an association with romance and love. But this association with uh, romance is very old indeed. It's mentioned in the late 14th century in the works of Geoffrey Chaucer and John Gower, who say that it was on St. Valentine's Day that birds would choose their mate. And there's mention of people choosing their valentines by the early 15th century. And by the end of that century, we know that valentines' gifts were being exchanged now, giving people Valentine's messages dates from at least the mid-18th century, though cards as we recognise them, well, they're an innovation of the late Victorian period. 
they go out of fashion in the early 20th century because they become a bit too bawdy and rude and they only really take off again in the 1950s. So how does this connection cotton on, this romantic idea? Is it just because of nature? Well, yeah, as I said, there's there's nothing in St. Valentine's life that suggests a special association with love. It could all come about because of nature, the amorous birds, you know, this sort of spring fertility kind of thing. Or it could perhaps be to do with an ancient Roman fertility festival that fell around this day. I think actually it might well have been on the 14th of February called the Lupercalia. Now, the Oxford Classical Dictionary, it's a go-to tone for any scholar of the ancient past, describes how this was accompanied by what it describes as various odd rites. Two youths, naked except for loincloths, would run around the Palatine Hill, that's one of the seven hills of ancient Rome, striking bystanders especially young women with um, well, with thong made from animal hide. It seems to have been a fertility festival of some kind. So is it kind of an echo of that? Who knows? Our next significant date is the 22nd of February. So what's so special about that date? Well, it's a very important holy day in the medieval calendar. It's the Feast of the Chair of Peter, or the, in Latin, the Cathedra Petra. And that's about, you know, power of St Peter and his success of the popes and a throne believed to be that of St Peter but actually I think it's Carolingian 8th century believed to be the pope the, the throne of St Peter the first pope was a major focus of pilgrimage in the Lateran church in Rome that's the pope's cathedral in the middle ages and after now our American listeners will also know that this is the date of the birthday of George Washington in 1732. And that's the origin of President's Day, a holiday observed on the third Monday in February. Um, 29th of February, our final date in the early calendar. This uh, is, of course, a leap year this year, and the 29th is, is the leap day. So why do we have leap years? Well, it's because the year is actually 365 and about one quarter long. So every four years, to correct the calendar, we have a day inserted on the 29th of February. How far back have these leap years been practised and put into calendars then? A very, very long time indeed. They are present in the calendar of Julius Caesar from 45 BC. But they were inserted not on the 29th of February, but after the 24th of February. You had the 24th of February twice, and that was continued into the Middle Ages and is indeed noted in medieval liturgical calendars. So why did they, the powers that be, decide that the 29th would be selected as as a date to have an extra day? It's all down to the calendar reform of Pope Gregory the Thirteenth in fifteen eighty two. It really wasn't very satisfactory repeating the twenty fourth twice, so we get the twenty ninth of February inserted in the calendar instead. But because England is such a determinedly Protestant country and won't have anything to do with these popish ways from Europe, it's not until the mid eighteenth century that the twenty ninth of February acquires legal status in England. And of course, people who are born on that day um, have unique birthdays, don't they? So uh, 
<laughs> technically they can change their age only once every four years. Yeah, and you, you but you celebrate your birthday on the 28th of February instead, I think. Yes, indeed. Yeah. indeed. I had a friend from school who uh, was at 29th, and I think by 16 he was four. Wrapping up then everything that we've discussed, Michael, how well do you think these feast days will survive into the future? Because obviously some have definitely been lost. Some have their days numbered and some perhaps are ripe for a, a revival. Yeah, I think that only a minority of listeners will have been aware of Plough Monday, St Hilary's Day, Candlemas, Collop Monday. They faded from view. And that's a consequence of reformation in religion, of industrialization. A lot of these calendar festivals were very, very important in the agricultural year. And gosh, I can't remember what percentage of the British population now works in agriculture, but it is tiny. Some may well be have their days numbered, but other ones I think are ripe for revival. I do wonder if Plough Monday could do with a reboot. The first day of work after the Christmas break can be pretty dismal, can't it? And something that enlivens it, especially if it involves community solidarity, would be very welcome indeed. And while January really is our new season of penance and denialism, it's, it's replaced Lent with its expected austerities. Yes, that's true. I'd quite like to see something that really pays tribute to the farmers who, you know, keep us all fed, despite all the imports that come in. I think maybe something involving combine harvesters or tractors driving through towns or villages with their lights on, perhaps as a sort of carnival type event. I think that would be quite nice. I mean, actually, it's really interesting you mentioned that in, in a couple of places in England in recent Christmases, I have seen on Christmas Eve processions of tractors going through villages so perhaps something is stirring already and we're not quite aware of it yet because time hasn't elapsed far enough for this to be a tradition and the way that we observe and celebrate our calendar festivals is constantly evolving and changing I'm an antiquarian and a scholar and I like the old ones and thinking about the way they were observed but they have responded to our changing religious beliefs. They've responded to changes in our manners and they have responded to the ways in which we earn a living and live our lives. And lastly, the first two months of the year after Christmas can be pretty challenging as we've been discussing. There's not a huge amount to get excited about. Which of these days though are you looking forward to and why? First of all, I think you to I'll make the point that, gosh, hasn't this podcast shown that the first couple of months of the year were punctuated by a number of ceremonies and holy days that really would have lightened them up and have we perhaps lost something over the centuries. But like talking about reasons to be optimistic, for me at least, in the early months of the year as well, First of all, I'll say that I have zero US connections as far as I'm aware, but it has got to be the 22nd of February, as well as being this great medieval feast of the chair of St. Peter. It's, so that really appeals to the antiquarian and me. It's also my birthday. 
And although I say it myself, it happens at a time of year where people are much, well, they're ready again for another knees up. Christmas is almost two months away. Their bank balances are starting to fatten up a little bit. So it's, I think it's a great time to have a birthday. Right, okay. It's almost like you're appealing for a nice birthday <laughs> presents from everybody listening. Uh, I've, 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 it's time in life where age is just the number and birthday presents, well, you know, you're just glad to have made another year. That's the yeah. biggest present. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Okay. Well, um, as we look forward to that special date for you, I wish you a future happy birthday for the 22nd. And... Um, well, I hope you enjoy some of the other festivals in between as well, particularly perhaps uh, the Shrove Tuesday and, and St. Valentine's Day, of course, for anyone else uh, listening. So, Michael, thank you very much for your time and explaining all these fantastic dates and perhaps also the future ones that may develop traditions as time sort of inexorably moves forward. It's been a pleasure as always. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be talking about the slippery subject of England's eel economy. Most of the time, they're counted in units called sticks, and a stick of eel is 25 eels. But they're paid essentially by salting them and smoking them and piling them up and taking them to your landlord in the back of your wagon or however it is you're getting them there. Thanks for listening. See you next time.